You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is George F. Will, certainly one of the most brilliant and influential conservative and libertarian thinkers of our lifetime. A Pulitzer Prize winning columnist, Will earned his PhD from Princeton University in 1968. He has written several books received multiple honorary degrees, and numerous other awards and recognitions. I would read them all, but then we would have no time for questions. Besides being thrilled for his appearance on this podcast, I am grateful to Dr. Will for signing my copy of Ulysses S. Grant's personal memoirs a decade ago, which he did with a bit of a smile on his face. I should also say that Mitch Daniels has signed that same copy. So it's definitely worth some money. Thank you very much, Mr. Will, for coming on the Leaders and Legends podcast. It's a a strong, strong honor to be able to talk to you for a little bit. I'm delighted to be with you. When I mentioned to people that I was going to have the honor of interviewing you, uh, the universal response was, oh, that's terrific. Quickly followed by, you're going to ask him about baseball? (laughs) Yeah, I get that a lot. I've published 16 books. One of which, Men at Work, The Craft of Baseball from 1990, has sold more than the other 15 combined, <laughs> which I take as a sign of national health. People are much more interested in baseball than politics. Well, let's start there. Uh, when did baseball first capture your attention and how has it held it over these past during these past several decades? Well, I grew up not far from you over in Champaign or Ben, Illinois, Central Illinois. In the late 40s and early 1950s, I was born in 1941. By age seven in 1948, I was a baseball fan. And baseball was in the air, literally. There were two teams in Chicago, two in St. Louis, which was the westernmost outpost of baseball, the Browns and the Cardinals. So baseball was a radio sport then. And it was sort of my connection with metropolitan America. So I, I can't, in short, I can't remember life without it. And you grew up at a time where there were several significant rivalries uh, that captured the national, the attention of everyone in America. Did you have a particular rivalry that you followed being, I believe, yeah. a Cubs fan? Right. I, and uh, Champaign-Urbana is basically midway between Chicago and St. Louis. And all my friends became Cardinal fans and grew up cheerful and liberal. And I became a gloomy conservative because I was a Cub fan and, and uh we did not win a lot. Did you become more libertarian about the time the Cubs won the World Series? I became a libertarian long before that. I became a libertarian by watching Washington at work. I've been here 52 years now. 
And uh, it's an education in the proper scope and actual competence of government. Is there a primary or first baseball memory? I grew up a fan of the Big Red Machine, so I can remember the 75 World Series against the Red Sox. But is there a particular memory that you, you hearken back to as a youth? Oh, I think my first Major League Baseball game, my grandfather on my father's side was a Lutheran minister in Denora, Pennsylvania, down uh, near Pittsburgh. And we'd go to visit him in the summer. And in 1950, I remember it well, age nine, we went to Ford's Field in Pittsburgh to see the Pirates who beat the Cardinals nine to nothing. And Wally Westlake hit a grand slam home run. And they were playing on the loudspeaker the hit song of the day, which was Irene Goodnight, I think by sung by Pete Seeger. Yes, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Just, uh, for decades until his death in 1999, uh, Joe DiMaggio was introduced as baseball's greatest living player based on a vote that was taken, a poll in 1969. Do you agree with this honor? And if not, who would you have placed ahead of him? Well, I would have placed a number of people ahead of him, even Stan Musial, and uh, maybe even uh, Ted Williams. Uh, today, it would be Willie Mays, particularly now that uh, Henry Aaron has died. Uh, some would say Willie Mays. I would almost say Ricky Henderson, who uh, holds so many records, could beat you in so many ways. Ted Williams seemed to have been both a hero on the field and what John Wayne would have actually been like. He was a sports hero. He was a war hero. Did you ever get a chance to meet him? And do you agree with the oft given praise that he's the greatest hitter who ever lived? He's certainly up there with Tony Gwynn, Rod Carew, Roger Sornsby, other pure hitters. Yeah, I met Ted Williams. I'll tell you a story. I don't think this is in my book, but it should be. Uh, a group of us used to meet upstairs at 21 Restaurant in, New, in Manhattan, and we'd invite for dinner, and we'd invite in a Hall of Famer, Robin Roberts and some others came. And we invited in Ted Williams once. Now, he was in a wheelchair then, but he was still sharp as a tack. And four years earlier, I had reviewed some books about Ted Williams for the New York Times Sunday Book Review, in which I had said, if the, tie, if the game was tied and the winning run was on second base, first base was open, and Ted Williams was at the plate, and three and two count, and the pitch was an inch off the plate, he wouldn't swing at it. He'd walk to first base rather than expand his strike zone. And I said, some people say that's not the way you ought to play baseball. So four years later, I'm over in the corner of this room, and Williams comes in. He looks over, and he spots me, and he says, George Will. You are a terrific columnist, but you don't know expletive deleted about baseball. <laughs> and he, and he, he chewed on my leg for about three hours. It was probably the highlight of my life. What, what did you write or what did you say or not say that caught his attention? Well, just that, that some people said that maybe he, he should have swung at, the, at a pitch and not walked to first base, should have driven in the run. <laughs> Am I correct in remembering that Ted Williams won baseball's triple crown twice and lost the MVP vote both times? Correct. Uh, 
he, he was not, uh, shall we say, politic in dealing with the press and the press vote on these things. And I don't think he gave a damn, frankly. In the year he batted 406, he lost the MVP to Joe DiMaggio because of the hitting streak. Right. Exactly right. Is it a surprise to you? It's not a surprise to us here in Indiana, but is it a surprise to you that Ted Williams and Bobby Knight were such close friends? Not a bit. No, I actually, I, I got to know Bobby Knight uh, quite well. And uh, he could be charming if he liked you. And if he didn't, you'd know it. Did he like you? Yep. How did you get to know him, if I may ask? Well, the, he brought his Indiana team to Washington for a regional in the NCAA March Madness. And he just out of the blue, he got in touch with me and said, uh, I like what you write, come to dinner. So I had dinner with his team. And speaking of a massive baseball fan, Bobby Knight is up there. Absolutely. When it, when it comes to being underrated as a baseball player, who is more underrated? The recently deceased Henry Aaron, or as you mentioned a few minutes ago, Stan Musial. They both seem to kind of be overshadowed somehow. Yeah, I think Musial's uh, under, the most underrated. If if Musial had played in New York rather than his entire uh, career in St. Louis, he would be ranked uh, in the top five players of all time, I think. This is, I thought one of the great statistics in baseball is a game of statistics, obviously, but uh, is that if Henry Aaron had never hit a home run, he still would have more than 3,000 hits. That's correct. No, he, he, Aaron, uh, I, I think intelligent people of goodwill can differ as to whether Ruth Aaron or May is the greatest player of all time, but that's it. Those three, I think, are preeminent. Did you get to know Yogi Berra pretty well? And would you have him as your catcher on your all-time team? Those of us who are Johnny Bench fanatics would maybe fuss a bit. Well, you and I are in agreement on this. Bench is, uh, that, that's one of the easiest. If you go around the, entry, uh, the, the diamond saying who's the best of all time, uh, the two easiest to me are catcher and third base, Johnny Bench and uh, Mike Schmidt. Head of Brooks Robinson, just because of the power? Yeah, but that's a lot of power. <laughs> <laughs> and and Schmidt was no slouch uh, uh, piling up gold gloves himself. If you could be present, could have been present at any baseball game ever played, which one would you choose? Easy choice. Game seven, 1960 World Series from the Pirates uh, on a walk-off home run by uh, uh, Bill Mazurowski beat the Yankees 10 to 9. Easy. My, uh, my best game in baseball history, in my judgment. My brother, who's been a Pirates fan since the late 60s, is going to love that answer. He still sings We Are Family every time <laughs> the Pirates highlights are shown, <laughs> no matter what. Uh, being a pirate fan these days will age age you. Oh yeah, that's true. That's certainly true. And the my team, the Reds, aren't doing much better. Uh, this is a, a somewhat controversial question, perhaps, but it depends on who you ask. If George Will could, would George Will place Pete Rose in the Hall of Fame? Nope. No, because, because he walked past probably twenty five thousand times on a billboard in every. Uh, major league club uh, clubhouse in bold face the injunction that 
anyone who bets on Major League Baseball is subject to a lifetime suspension. Uh, he ignored it, and then he lied about it, and uh, either baseball meant what it said or he didn't. It seems to me either baseball thinks it's important or it doesn't. And uh, in that sense, uh, I, I think uh, he should not be in the Hall of Fame. It's partly because we have to decide what the Hall of Fame is. Isn't it simply a museum that gives a record of baseball, in which case uh, he belongs? But if it is a shrine, and we talk about being enshrined in Cooperstown, and if the Hall of Fame means what it says in the instructions it sends to uh, the voters, which stresses sportsmanship and uh, integrity of the game and all that, then the answer is no. One of the most eloquent uh, answers given to that same question I was watching, and it was Johnny Bench. And his argument was against Rose being in the Hall of Fame. And he said, well, then, if you believe Rose should be in the Hall of Fame, then go home and tell your kids that there are no rules. Good point. Good point. Take me out to the ball game is your cell phone ring. That's my my ringtone, yes. If your entire book collection, which I'm assuming is voluminous, no pun intended, was dependent on one pitcher winning one game, whom would you place on the mound? One pitcher, one game. Oh, golly. Ah, I'm going to surprise you a little bit. Probably Tom Seaver. He's thoughtful. He's astonishingly talented one gobs of games probably zebra three cy youngs i recall yeah what did you think when you watched nolan ryan beat the living hell out of robin ventura who was who was 15 years or 20 years his junior yeah well it was a texan he's a cowboy out on the mound (laughs) robin should have known better Baseball sometimes is is criticized and says it needs fixed. Do you subscribe to that view? And if so, how would you fix it? Clearly, it's lost some ground to football as a as the people say baseball is still the national pastime, but football is the national passion. Uh, baseball does need to be fixed. The declining attendance says so. The fact that uh, the ball is put in play uh, less and less. Games get longer with with less action. Uh, The great athleticism of the modern baseball player is not on display because the ball is not put in play. Uh, The great defensive skills of Lindor and Arenado and Chapman and the rest are going to waste. Yes, I mean, in in the most watched game of 2020, the last game of the Dodgers-Tampa Bay World Series, the ball was put in play every six and a half minutes on average in the last 25 minutes of the game, it was put in play exactly twice. It's boring. Uh, And uh, if they don't fix it, the baseball is going to become a marginalized niche sport. Do you have a favorite era of baseball? Everyone's everyone's favorite era is when they were 14. but I'm, I'm not really that way. I know that uh, I was 14 and uh, 1955. Uh, baseball today, in terms of the talent, uh, is uh, better than it's ever been. Now we just need to change the incentives and change some of the rules and make it better yet. 
the salaries are exponentially greater than they were uh, when you and I were 14 in different eras. Does that bother you at all? Or is it just capitalism at work? It's capitalism at work. I mean, if, if, if the, the owners weren't generating the revenues, uh, players wouldn't be getting the money. And no one ever paid a dime to see an owner. Or an owner. <laughs> You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. We are talking with columnist George F. Will. Switching gears a little bit. You were at Princeton, I believe, at the same time as another guest of the Leaders and Legends podcast, and that's former Governor Mitch Daniels. Uh, please tell us a little bit about your friendship with him and how you came to write the forward to his book, Keeping the Republic. Well, Mitch Daniels is one of the most accomplished and experienced people of government in our lifetime. Very important uh, positions in uh, uh, the executive branch in Washington, and of course, two terms as governor of Indiana. Low-key, very conservative, but not mad at anybody. Uh, intimidatingly intelligent. I, I think he's a United States president that we missed out on. I had to do an interview with the day after his decision on a local TV station wearing my uh, my man Mitch green T-shirt yeah, and lamented the fact, as we all did here in Indiana, because of his terrific record. But did you did you meet him at Princeton or I know there was a white, no, no, no. white House connection, too? I was I was at Princeton uh, well before Mitch was. Uh, and uh, I mean, I'm 80 years old. and He's a child. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I met him in Washington, and then I uh, had dealings with him as governor of Indiana. He's been to dinner in my house. Uh, we talk. We now both write columns. He writes columns occasionally uh, as a contributing columnist to the Washington Post. So we're in the same business at last. You mentioned he's the president, a president we missed out on, although Purdue gladly calls him so are there some other folks who you wish who had either been president perhaps or maybe more re realistically made a legitimate uh, consequential run uh scoop jackson a democrat mm -hmm. from uh state of washington was a, during the cold war was a, uh, kept the democrats uh, focused on strong stands against the soviet union at a time when the, the McGovernization of the party was weakening their resolve. Uh, Scoop would have been great president. One of my best friends was another Democrat, uh, Senator Pat Moynihan of New York, finest social scientist ever to serve in the legislative branch. I think he'd have been terrific. And served in, as... in most of my books, if you turn to the index, uh, I think it's probably true in my new one, uh, you'll see a lot of Moynihan references. And little known fact, he served in the Nixon administration. Yes, he did. And served Gerald Ford. And didn't he beat, did he, didn't he beat William F. Buckley's brother for the Senate oh. race? Or he, uh, he yes, yes, he did. He did in 1970. Two of my, two of my friends ran against each other, Jim and Pat. In the second podcast interview we did with Mitch Daniels, um, 
I asked him, quote, if George Will would be the first person he'd choose for his debate team. His response was, quote, yes, and you wouldn't need anyone else. <laughs> That's very nice of Mitch. Thanks. <laughs> if you were putting together a debate team of four or five conservatives and or libertarians, uh, whom would you choose? And I preface that remark by saying I watched some of the, and I'll ask you about it here in just a second. I watched some of the Panama Canal treaties debate last night to prepare for this podcast. It's on YouTube. It's spectacular. Whom would you choose? Uh, among living folks. It doesn't have to be. Uh, yeah. Oh, I, I well, Pat Moynihan, uh, who showed when he was in the UN Security Council his uh, tremendous skills, uh, rhetorical skills. Uh, Ted Cruz, although Ted and I differ on a lot of things, but uh, Ted Cruz, an accomplished advocate, he's argued before the Supreme Court. He's clerked for the Supreme Court justice. Those would be two to start with. Probably also Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska is a Yale history PhD and very fluent. Am I remembering correctly that that, that Lawrence Tribe, the, the significantly liberal law professor of Harvard, said that Ted Cruz was the brightest student he ever had? Huh. Well, that wouldn't surprise me. Is there anyone who you wouldn't want to see on the other side of the debate team? Someone yeah, who's Ted Ted Cruz. <laughs> Were you a fan of people like John Kenneth Galbraith and, and no, Michael no. Kinsley and some other sort of uh, intellectuals who came out in the 70s and after? Sure. Michael, yes. Uh, Galbraith, no. Galbraith was a big star in the 1950s. Uh, uh, his book, The Affluent Society, was very important in my intellectual formation. I read it when I was either a freshman in college or a senior in high school. And I said, whatever else is true, this isn't. And it was, it was my recoil against the silliness of the affluent society that uh, helped propel me toward conservatism. What did so he that in that, Go ahead, sir. Well, well, it, 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 he wrote that in 1958, I believe it was. He was published. And that was the decade in which America went. The decade began with Americans essentially having no television sets. Most of the television sets then were in bars. To the end of the decade, we'd become a, a television nation. And with this powerful marketing tool in everyone's living room, there was a great anxiety about the power of advertising to manipulate the American people. Uh, it was a book called The Hidden Persuaders by Vance Packard and all of us kind of a, a moral panic, not unlike the panic we're having today about social media manipulating us with their algorithms. And Galbraith said, without a smidgen of data to demonstrate this, he simply asserted that such is the power of advertising, that manufacturers can manufacture demand for whatever they find it convenient convenient to produce. Therefore, said Galbraith, because the American people are such a bovine herd of manipulable cows, uh, therefore, the, the law of supply and demand has been obviated. And therefore, uh, we don't need to respect consumer sovereignty because consumers really aren't sovereign. That was and He had the misfortune of publishing this hymn of praise to the power of marketing 
just at the moment when the Ford Motor Company was putting all of its mar marketing might behind a new product called the Ford Edsel, which of course went nowhere uh, because turns out you couldn't manufacture uh, uh, demand for any old thing. 1978, you participated in a firing line debate, the show uh, made famous by William F. Buckley, about the proposed Panama Canal treaties. Uh, I watched it uh, several years ago and then watched it again last night preparing for this podcast. It's somewhat surreal, if only because Senator Sam Irvin from the uh, Watergate committee is praising Pat Buchanan for his intellect and way with words just a few years after Pat Buchanan appeared before his Watergate select committee. Uh, your memories of that debate and specifically your what interests me most is your relationship with William F. Buckley and, and what he meant to people like us who have a certain set of philosophies. Well, in that debate, uh, it was Reagan against Buckley, assisted by two people. Uh, I and James Burnham, a national founding editor of National Review, assisted Bill and Pat Buchanan and John McCain's father, an admiral, uh, who was also the son of an admiral, uh, supported uh, Reagan. Uh, Bill, I went to work in, in Washington. I left the University of Toronto where I was teaching to go to Washington, intending to only stay a few years and then go back to teaching. Uh, at the end of three years, I decided I wanted to stay in Washington. So I called Bill, for whom I'd written a few things, and said, you need what you've never had, which is a Washington editor of National Review. Bill essentially said, you're right, I do, and you're it. Uh, Bill liked to collect young people who he thought had some promise. Uh, and when I started writing a column, I asked him the question that I now know after 49 years as a columnist is the most frequently asked question of columnists, which is how do you come up with things to write about? I asked that to Bill, and he said, the world irritates me three times a week. <laughs> uh, I would modify that, say the world irritates or piques my curiosity or amuses me or puzzles me often enough that I've never, ever had trouble finding things to write about. Along with another uh, media titan, I wanted to ask you, first off, let me say, thank God for National Review. It's been absolutely indispensable the last, well, the last <laughs> however many decades, but especially so the last several years. It's it's the first, literally the first thing I read online every morning. It remains, it has retained its brilliance for sure and its courage. Uh, but another journalistic titan with whom you are associated, and that is... Uh, David Brinkley, you were a founding member of the show. Uh, what was it like to be associated with him? And and what was it like to cross swords weekly with Sam Donaldson? And uh, I can tell you, many of us felt sometimes that you just kind of took it easy on poor Sam. Well, Sam was, uh, in spite of his demeanor, was actually quite friendly and nice, just a very thoughtful guy and uh, uh, kind. Uh, David Brinkley who was the uh, most famous man from Wilmington, North Carolina, until Michael Jordan came along. David, David was uh, wonderful to work with because you turned on the red light on the camera and your show was number one. That's all you had to do is people came. That was destination television for people to uh, 
to, to watch David, completely relaxed, absolutely no difference between the Brinkley on camera and the Brinkley off camera. There's a YouTube clip about him playing cards, playing poker with Winston Churchill. I didn't know that. And Harry Truman. And, and there's some other journalists and they were taking Churchill's money. And Churchill got up to go to the bathroom when he was headed west, I believe, for the Iron Curtain speech. And uh, Truman said, you know, this guy kind of saved Western civilization. Maybe we ought to let him get his money back. And Churchill won all his money back. I see. I'm surprised David let him do that. Uh, last few minutes here with columnist George Will on the Leaders and Legends podcast. I saw you a few weeks ago. You were here in Indianapolis speaking for the Remnant Trust, a terrific, terrific organization with strong roots here in Indianapolis. But one of the first things I mentioned to you when I invited you and you gratefully and graciously accepted to be on the podcast is that I had just interviewed Alan Gelzo historian uh, who currently works at Princeton, formerly at Gettysburg College, who has written a new biography of Robert E. Lee. You also just wrote a review of this book. What did you think about it? And uh, what do you think about the recent reevaluation of Lee's counterpart, Ulysses S. Grant? Uh, A, uh, it's an excellent biography. I recommend it to everyone. Although B, one of the things that struck me about it was what a bore Robert E. Lee was. He lived through some of the great arguments of American history about freedom, slavery, justice, honor, the nature of the union, the constitution. And so far as I can tell, Lee never said an interesting thing, never had a, had a thought that was memorable. Uh, so it, uh, again, I'm from central Illinois, Lincoln country, and I, I, I'm, I, I have not a, a, a smidgen of sympathy for those who tried to destroy the country, which the Confederacy tried to do. I think that the rehabilitation of the reputation of Ulysses Grant, uh, probably the best writer uh, among American presidents, certainly his war memoirs are the greatest book I think ever produced by an American president. Uh, Ulysses Grant, it's interesting, his reputation was revived by a non-academic historian, Ron Chernow. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is, this is indicative of the fact that while Americans have a ravenous appetite for serious history about great American figures, that appetite is most often satisfied not by academic historians who are, who have lost the thread of how to address a large audience, but by non-academics. Grant always seemed to have suffered in comparison to Lee as a general. Uh, I used to give speeches to Civil War roundtables around the Midwest about the relationship between Grant and uh, Lincoln and how that was the, the cement that bound the war effort together that eventually prevailed. Lincoln often spoke of of several objectives, freeing the Unionists of East Tennessee, freeing the Mississippi River for navigation, the capture of Lee's army or the defeat of Lee's army and the capture of Richmond. And Grant was the man who gave him all four. What what explains the the veneration of Lee somewhat at the expense of Grant? Is it just the lost cause theory and that that movement cult or something else? 
The lost cause is a big part of it. Second, the fact that Lee had this goody two-shoes demeanor. I mean, he went through West Point without a single demerit, which is mm. remarkable. Uh, he was stolid. He was he wasn't part of the confessional culture of the modern world. He kept his feelings to himself. Uh, so, um, and, and I, I do think the gone with the wind type of sentimentality about the South that we, we went through in the 1930s when that movie was made and when Douglas Southall Freeman published his worship four volume biography <laughs> of, of, uh, of Lee, that all contributed to it. It's not something I think, uh, looking back on it, that Americans should feel proud of. Hey, geography hardly uh, uh, subs- describes Freeman's view of of Lee, especially. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who else do you Who else do you think is overdue for a reexamination for good or for ill? Oh gosh, uh, I don't know. I mean, I've just read the new biography of Calhoun. Uh, who strikes me as extremely bright and extremely unpleasant, uh, a, a very bad influence, but uh, a man of great talent. Uh, my pinup among the founders really is uh, James Madison as a political philosopher and thinker and practitioner. But uh, he was five four. He was soft spoken. He was a shrinking violet and doesn't lend himself to uh, biography. I'm afraid. And his performance as commander in chief is uh, lacking. Left much to be desired. At the same event in which you signed my copy of Grant's memoirs, I sent up a history question for your consideration. You, they, The MC read it to you and you chuckled and said, I need some time. So it's been 10 years, although I'm sure you haven't been pondering it. But uh, what is your Mount Rushmore of the greatest Americans who were never president? John Marshall is I think the third most important American ever behind uh, Lincoln and Washington. John Marshall, uh, arguably another Marshall, George Marshall, who uh, was so important to winning the Second World War and launching our architecture of containment in the Cold War. Uh, Two others, I think uh, you could, I think, make a strong case for uh, uh, Henry Clay, who uh, tried unavailingly, but fought a lot of time uh, to prevent the sectional divisions in the country from becoming civil war. Uh, and um, uh, just the first Justice Harlan. Uh, the great John Marshall Harlan? Or? Yes, who, who it was named after the great Chief Justice and who dissented memorably in the in the odious Plessy v. Ferguson decision that ratified the separate but equal segregation policies. Those four. Do you have a most overrated person in American history? Someone just makes you go, Ugh. oh, gosh, I don't know. I, Jack Kennedy's overrated because of the sentimentality attaching to him because of his tragic death. Uh, he wasn't president long enough to to uh, earn, or she might have done, the uh, stature he nevertheless enjoys. Underrated? Someone who you think just doesn't get his due, or her due? Uh, underrated. William Howard Taft. Uh, 
who uh, had the misfortune to run in for re-election in 12 against former president and his former good friend, Teddy Roosevelt, and the future <laughs> president, the winner of the election, uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson. Uh, Woodrow Wilson's probably the most overrated president, I think, of all time. What do you think of Princeton's efforts or actions to to address that Wilson's legacy and his person? I can understand what Princeton did, that uh, Woodrow Wilson, uh, people did not pay sufficient attention to the fact that he was at heart a Confederate. He was from the South, uh, grew up in Southern Virginia. His father had been a uh, minister in South Carolina. Uh, he was a Confederate sympathizer. He showed the first movie ever shown in the White House, which was the, the odious birth of a nation celebrating the Ku Klux Klan and Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was a war criminal. Uh, so uh, I, I think uh, taking Woodrow Wilson down a peg or two is just fine. When you hear today, you hear all the time, politics is worse than ever. We're more divided than ever. People need to come together. This is the worst time in our history. Your response is? Oh, we've, they should have been around in the 1790s when our party system was just forming and we were learning how to be partisan. Or in the 1750s when uh, uh, we were definitely coming to blows on the floor of the Congress over their sectional differences and the, the rather large question of whether some human beings could own other human beings. So we've, we've been here before. We've come to the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests for George F. Will. Number one, what was your first job? Paperboy, uh, delivering the Champaign-Urbana Courier every afternoon. I'd fold the 50 papers, stick them in the canvas bag on the handles of my uh, handlebars of my Schwinn, balloon tire Schwinn, and throw them on people's porches. What was your first concert? I've been to many. I guess I've been to Michael Jackson and Alan Jackson and Rolling Stones. But I think the first might have been Bruce Springsteen because Springsteen's drummer in the East Beat Band uh, 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 is a, became a kind of friend. He's actually moving to Washington now, and he invited me to go and meet the boss, which I did. You're good friends with Max Weinberg. Yeah. 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 Good fella. You have an eclectic friend list, Mr. Will. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. <laughs> Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? I wouldn't recommend a book. I'd recommend an essay called uh, I Pencil by John Reed, R-E-A-D, that makes the point that no one can make a pencil. No one can make a pencil, that there are millions of people involved in the making of a simple yellow lead pencil. Uh, and if you want to know why that's so, read the essay. And if you read the essay, you will understand the importance of globalization, of free trade uh, around the world. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Lincoln's second inaugural, because it's one of the great uh, oratorical masterpieces of human experience. And second, I would have warned him about the man who's in the photograph <laughs> standing below him named John Wilkes Booth. I said, watch out for this fellow. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, just to chat, whom would you choose? Buck Showalter, 
who knows more about baseball than almost anyone. And he's funny as can be. You have been listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. It's presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Pulitzer Prize winning and influential thinker George F. Will. We've discussed baseball, politics, and history. I'm very, very grateful for your time. Glad to have been with you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.